God has had in His heart this position of forgiveness towards those who are in Christ. But for the whole thing to be made complete, the sinner must repent. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, verse 4. So John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So here we read, John appeared. Now, that word appeared, that's the main verb of that whole sentence. So appeared, and then we have two prepositional verbs that go along with it. He appeared, and he appeared doing two things, baptizing and proclaiming. So the word appeared there uh, could be literally translated arrived. The image there that we're given is that he just sort of showed up. John appeared almost as if out of nowhere. Now, we know that John didn't appear out of nowhere because Luke gives us, of course, the story of his miraculous conception. Remember the whole Zephaniah and Elizabeth who was barren and uh, they were both of the tribe of Levi. So Zephaniah was, was uh, or Zechariah was serving in the temple and the angel Gabriel comes and he disbelieves and he's struck mute until John arrives. Remember the whole story, right? But as Mark portrays it here, it's as though literally just John just showed up. So here we see this parallel starting between John the baptizer and Elijah. If you remember Elijah, back when we studied through Elijah, one of the things that we noted about Elijah was how Elijah just showed up out of nowhere. It's intended for us to see 1 Kings 17, where Elijah shows up, it's intended for us to just think that he just came out of nowhere. We're not given his genealogy. We're not told what tribe he's from. We know nothing about him other than he's from this place called Tishbe. So what that was showing us is that Elijah, of course, was the first prophet, not meaning that he was the first one to prophesy, but it means he was the first one who held the office of prophet. And as the first prophet, he was the prototypical prophet. He was the forerunner of the eternal prophet, who is Christ, right? In the same way that Melchizedek was the forerunner of the eternal priest, who is Jesus. So Melchizedek has no lineage, no tribe, no information about Melchizedek, because he is the forerunner of the eternal priest, Christ. In the same way, Elijah is the forerunner of the eternal prophet, Christ. And so also, Elijah just sort of shows up out of nowhere, now John or Mark is portraying John the baptizer in the same sort of way. He just appeared. He just appeared seemingly out of nowhere. So John appeared, and he appeared doing two things, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. So he's baptizing and proclaiming a baptism. And he's doing both of these in the wilderness. So the first thing that we see is that his ministry takes place entirely in the wilderness. This is Correlated, of course, by the other three Gospels, all three of them talk about how John's ministry took place entirely in the wilderness. We could take a little bit more time. We won't take the time, but we could see that it was a pretty big area in which John is said to have been ministering. It it crosses the Jordan. It takes place on both sides of the Jordan. And this area is described to us as just like you think a wilderness to be dry, arid, largely without vegetation, chalky. Uh, very, very little moisture, snakes, 
that kind of thing. I mean, just like you'd expect a wilderness to be. And this is the area in which John is said to have been ministering. So again, we see the correlation with Elijah. And we also see the correlation between a lot of other things in the scriptures that teach us what it is that a wilderness represents in the scriptures. So a wilderness oftentimes represents for us in the scriptures the place where God prepares a man for ministry. Just think of of the times in which we've seen this happen. Elijah at the drying brook. Uh, Moses, the 40 years in the wilderness. The, The wilderness is where God spoke to Moses by way of the bush that didn't burn. Or Jesus's preparation in the wilderness. Or David's preparation. Paul's preparation. We could just go on and on. Here we see in the same way, the wilderness is the place where God does his preparing work. And who is he preparing? Not the baptizer. He's preparing his people. Because it's not just the baptizer that's in the wilderness. It's the people who are coming to him in the wilderness. So in the wilderness is where all this is going to take place. So that's a correlation that we see. This this correlation between the wilderness and God's place of preparation. He's preparing his people to receive him. And he's doing that preparatory work in the wilderness. But we also see, I think, a correlation between just this, the lifestyle of John. We'll get into this a little bit later when we talk about his wardrobe and his diet. But there's a correlation between John in which he just seems to reject all the ostentatious things of his day. He just seems to reject. His life is all about barrenness. His ministry is all about barrenness. And he's ministering in a very barren time of Israel, a time of of dryness, a spiritual dryness, so to speak. This, This represents the heart that's prepared to receive Messiah. It's the, it's the heart that has been dried up, if you will, of all of its human resources, and it's now ready to see and hear and to receive Messiah. So all this is what the wilderness is sort of speaking to us in the background. But we read this again here. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming or uh, heralding. And what's he heralding? He's heralding or proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So that phrase right there actually shows up word for word on the lips of Jesus. At the end of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, you remember the road to Emmaus. Jesus is walking on this road with the disciples and he's opening their minds to understand the scriptures. He's opening their minds to understand him because they were just so down and sullen and and just so depressed because they thought... This man, Jesus, was the one, but clearly he wasn't. He's dead. So Jesus is opening their mind to understand the scriptures. And Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things so that repentance unto unto forgiveness would be proclaimed? Exact same words that John uses. A A baptism of repentance unto forgiveness. Exact same words, exact same phrase. So from the words of Jesus, from the lips of Jesus comes this affirmation that what John came proclaiming and heralding was also what Jesus was here to do. This baptism, as John's doing, this baptism of repentance unto forgiveness. So we could talk a great deal this morning about repentance, but instead, let's let's try to keep it in the context. The context here is a baptism of repentance unto forgiveness. So first of all, the baptism part. Where in the world did baptism come from? If you read your Old Testament, 
looking for the word baptism or baptize, you won't find it because baptism is not in the Old Testament. In fact, the practice of baptizing came about in what we call the intertestament period. The intertestament period was this period of about 400 years between the writing of the last book of the Old Testament and the arrival of John. So this period of about 400 years in which God was largely silent, there were no prophets, and a lot of things took place. There was the the Maccabean revolt, and that's where the uh, uh, Hanukkah comes from, the Festival of Lights, all that comes from the intertestamental period. But also in that period arose this practice of baptism. Now, baptism, I know you've heard that the word means literally submerge or immerse or dunk. And so this is what they were doing. They began dunking or submersing submersing people in water. And the thing is that the baptism, the practice of baptizing arose as a proselyte baptism. That's how it all started, with a proselyte baptism. That just means that when a non-Jew believed in the living God and wanted to be part of the community of God's people, during that period of time, they began baptizing those people, immersing them in water as this symbolic ritual of them entering into the people of God. So a baptism in John's day was understood to be a proselyte baptism, which would mean that those who were being baptized were non-Jews. So imagine how this was received. But we're going to see in just a minute how it was received, which is actually counterintuitive to how we might think it would be received. We might think that this would be outrightly rejected. What do you mean? You're baptizing inside of Palestine here, Judea, Jerusalem. All these people from Judea and Jerusalem are coming to be baptized. And what are you saying that we're not Jews? Are you saying that we're not God's people? That we have to enter into this baptism of becoming God's people? And that's exactly what God was, or that's exactly what John was saying. His message exactly was this. You cannot stand on your heritage. That's what he'll say in Matthew's gospel. The axe is ready to be put to the, to the roots. And don't tell me that, that you have Abraham as your father, for God is able to raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. That was John's message. You cannot rely upon your ethnic heritage. And here people are coming to receive this message to enter into this baptism that was in large measure saying, we realize that we're not the people of God, but we want to be the people of God. So it was a baptism, but it wasn't just a proselyte baptism. It was a baptism, as we're told, of repentance unto forgiveness. So we could talk a lot about repentance, but let's talk about forgiveness for just a little bit. So the baptism was a baptism unto repentance. The the preparing of the way was a preparing of the way, bringing mountains down, bringing valleys up, all of that to prepare to baptize into a baptism of repentance. The repentance is preparing for Messiah, and the baptism is a baptism unto forgiveness of sins. So this baptism unto forgiveness was not... Not the basis of forgiveness. We know that the basis of forgiveness, of course, is Jesus' work on the cross. But the baptism is a baptism unto forgiveness. So just a, uh, just a little bit about this word forgiveness. It, it literally means send away or sent away. The root of the word, actually not the root, the very word itself, comes from Leviticus 16. 
If you remember Leviticus 16, the Greek, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Leviticus 16 uses this word to describe what was done to the scapegoat. Remember the scapegoat? There are the two goats on Yom Kippur. The one goat was sacrificed. The other goat, the priest would put his hands on the goat's head, confess the sins of the people, and that goat would be driven out, sent out. And that was symbolically sending the sins of the people into the pool of God's forgetfulness, sending that goat away. That is the word that the New Testament latches onto and is translated forgiveness. Literally, sent out, sent away. Sent into the forgetful land of God's forgetfulness. So this baptism unto repentance is this baptism unto the sending away of the sins of the people. So let's think about this repentance and why it was, and I think you'll see quite clearly, why it is that John is here to prepare the way for Messiah to come. Because repentance and forgiveness has a, if you want to call it a two-stage sort of reality to it. There is a forgiveness that is, you might think of an incomplete forgiveness, and there is a forgiveness that's a completed forgiveness. To best see this, let's think think with me on the life of Joseph. And, And Joseph is a great place to see this and to understand it. And once we see this, we're related to God, and we're related to his forgiveness, and we're related to the work that John's doing. And I think it'll make sense. So Joseph, you remember the story, his brothers treated him horribly. They sold him into slavery, threw him in the pit. He was drugged down to Egypt, made to be a slave, a prisoner, all these sorts of things. Then as it comes to be, he then ends up being the second in charge of the land of Egypt. But then there's a famine that comes upon the land. And then eventually Joseph's brothers need to come down to Egypt to get some food because they're starving. And so they come and then there's this whole long drawn out sort of ordeal. But then finally, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. You remember in Genesis 50, verse 20, we all remember that passage. You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. And in the context of that whole passage, Joseph forgives his brothers. Now, here's the question. Was that the moment that Joseph forgave them? No. Joseph didn't forgive his brothers right there on the spot, at least not in a sense. In another sense, he did. But in another sense... He had already forgiven them. His heart had already come to a place at some point before that. Maybe it was sitting in the dungeon. Maybe it was in Potiphar's home. Maybe, who knows when it was, but at some point before that, Joseph's heart had come to a point in which he gave up the bitterness and the unforgiveness and he gave it to God and in his heart, he forgave them. However, that wasn't complete forgiveness, right? Because his brothers didn't know anything about it. And so the forgiveness wasn't completed, in a sense, until his brothers come, Joseph reveals himself to them. They say, oh my God, you're alive? Yes, and don't don't worry about this. God meant this for good. I, I know you might have meant it for evil, but I forgive you. And then their response is, We have wronged you. We have wronged you. And Joseph's response is, I forgive you. That's when forgiveness is complete. 
So forgiveness can really be thought of in two ways. Rick Rick Thomas describes it as pre-forgiveness, and I think that's a really helpful way to think of it. Pre-forgiveness. Pre-forgiveness is what needs to happen in your heart when someone has sinned against you and they've not repented to you, or they've not come and asked for forgiveness, or they've not even acknowledged that they've sinned against you. Pre-forgiveness is what needs to happen in your heart in which you say, I will take a position of forgiveness towards them. I will release them from the debt of sin that they owe me. Now that forgiveness is then made complete when hopefully the time comes when that person comes and confesses. I've wronged you. Will you forgive me? And then you extend the forgiveness and that's when it's completed. Okay. You follow what I'm saying? Now let's take all of that and let's apply it to God's forgiveness of us. God's forgiveness of us works in a similar way in the sense that in eternity past, Ephesians 1 verse 3, before the foundation of the world, God in his mind made us his people. God determined in his mind that he would take an attitude, a position of forgiveness toward his people based on the atoning work of the cross that was to come. He would take an attitude, a position of forgiveness towards those who are in Christ. Yet that forgiveness wasn't completed in a sense until what? Repentance. Until the ones who will be forgiven then say to God, I've sinned. I see it now. I've sinned against you. And so the atoning work of Christ on the cross in a real way, will not be complete without the repentance of those he died for. That's why John has to prepare the way. That's why his work of preparation is making the mountains low and the valleys high, get the pride out of the way, because as we see the people respond to John, what are they doing? They are Confessing their sins. Jesus will die in about three years. He will make the atonement that secures their forgiveness. Meanwhile, since eternity, God has had in his heart this position of forgiveness towards those who are in Christ. But for the whole thing to be made complete, the sinner must repent. And this is John's preparatory work. All the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, doing what? Confessing their sins. You know what confessing means or confession? Literally, what confession means is agreeing with God about your sinful position. That's what confession of sin is. Confession of sin is saying to God, God, I agree with your assessment of me. I agree with your words regarding my behavior, regarding my heart, regarding my thoughts, regarding my actions. I agree that I am a sinner before your face, before your eyes. And so this is what they were doing. They were coming and they were confessing their sins because this message of John had taken great, great root. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.